This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. To quote Psalm 118 verse 24 and again placing in our heart the enjoyment and the precious privilege that's ours to assemble on this morning. As we are assembled here at the Pippin congregation, we are thankful for our membership and all who have come our way this day, including our visitors who are in our midst. We trust that for each of us, our worship service together, including the songs, the prayers, the other aspects thereof, will be encouraging and uplifting and will direct us as we start this week in the way most pleasing to our Heavenly Father. We began a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning having to do with that person, that individual, I should say, known as the devil. And as we raised a number of questions and issues concerning him, some of them, in fact, directed us in some ways that were intriguing, to say the least. We asked, does he exist? And we found the overwhelming answer from the Word of God to be yes. There is a being, an entity known as the devil. We also learned where he came from. We appreciated that he wasn't fashioned and made in the evil way that he now is, rather as an angel who with his own choice he chose to do that which was rebellious toward God. As such, God consigned him to the character of eternal punishment. However, we do notice that he does possess power and capability today. Furthermore, we also will remember that his nature... We looked at a host of His names, the designations directed toward Him, and found that He is standing opposed to God and the will of God and all that that will involves. I would ask today that we take this study a little bit further. You may have noted in the bulletin that the title was The Devil Part 2, and the subtitle was Temptation. In what way does the devil tempt you and me, and why does he do it? Furthermore, what are the possible responses that you and I have to that temptation? And what ways are there available to us to overwhelm it and overcome it? What are the thoroughfares by which we can remain outside that element of sin as we deal with temptation in the way that would be best for us? Perhaps I should go ahead and at this point say, we will not be able to answer all of those questions this morning. The Bible has too much to say about it. We will, though, address some of them and reserve the others until next Lord's Day morning. At this point, these introductory thoughts point us again to the one with whom we are dealing. Those two names, perhaps used more often than any other in the Bible with regard to the devil, that word devil literally means the diabolical one. He's up to no good. Furthermore, that word Satan literally means the adversary. The enemy, the one standing opposed to and the one standing against. It is with that in mind that we will in fact develop the first part of the lesson this morning. Dealing with the matter of in what way is he opposed? And to whom is he opposed to? What impact does that have on you and me? And so the first part of our lesson, let's proceed in the following way if we might. I've simply entitled it, His Opposition to God. We learned last Lord's Day morning in some detail that this particular being, this devil, noticed that he tried open rebellion toward God at one point. Jude verse number 6 as well as 2 Peter 2 verse 4 remind us that inasmuch as there were some angels unsatisfied with their habitation, they rebelled against the Almighty God of heaven. However, God put down that rebellion, 
casting these, if you please, out of the friendly confines of that noble place. Inasmuch as that took place, as recorded in the Bible, it brings us to this realization. These angels, including the devil, were guilty of sin. They rebelled against the great God of heaven. They transgressed His will, and as much as they were guilty of sin, God, in fact, consigned them evermore to that place on that final sentence of eternity. At that point, then, you might notice, the devil was unsuccessful in his rebellion against God per se. He failed. He was not able to overpower and overwhelm the great God of heaven. Thus, what did he then attempt to do? He set his mind and he set his tactic, his mission and his objective toward ruining God's prized possession, His prized creation. Of course, that's the human family, you and me. The devil didn't turn his attention toward the moon and the sun and the stars and the earth as far as is the globe on which we walk. He turned his attention toward that element of God's creation that was the finest, the most prized, the grandest and greatest. He is set then for your destruction and for mine. In Genesis 1 verse 26, God there said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And one verse later we notice that both male and female were fashioned and made in that way. Friend, the devil is interested in you, and he's interested in me. He's interested not because of what good you might do, not because of the glory you might bring to God, not in order to encourage you in that way. He's interested in you for selfish reasons, because he wants you and me to be exactly where he forever shall be. As we seek to develop that thought a little bit more carefully... I would ask you to notice three particular ways in which his opposition to God is so pointedly set out in the Scriptures. First of all, his opposition to God with respect to life. Isn't it a joyous thing that we read in Genesis 2-7? And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God was the originator of life. He fashioned it. He made it. He gave it all the characteristics of loveliness. Not only that, that element of life highlighted so marvelously in Paul's beautiful sermon recorded in Acts the 17th chapter. Do we not there read that it is God who giveth us life and breath and all things? Isn't it God that we read of who in fact looks upon and seeks the interest in terms of man's worship to and of Him. Having stated these matters about God, consider the devil. He's just the opposite. God brought about life and all of its wonder. What did Satan bring about? He had an integral part in the entrance of death. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, on that occasion, God, in speaking to the man, had particularly said unto him, That of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. We notice there God made mention of this element called death. Thou shalt surely die. We well remember as the next chapter opened, we notice that both the man and the woman 
partook of that forbidden fruit. They thus did what God told them not to do. They committed sin. And as God addressed each of them, we remember the sentence of death came upon them. In verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3, in particular there it is affirmed, Of the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For of the dust wast thou made, and unto dust shalt thou return. Here was the sentence of death. Satan thus was successful in allowing death to enter into the element of the human family. Adam and Eve originally had access to the tree of life, and of that they could partake, and never would they have died. But once they were cast out of the garden, no longer having access to that tree, physical death was part of the sentence that came upon them. But might we also notice this? Today, that sentence is still, of course, among us. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. But notice also something else could be said about death. When Adam and Eve had that perfect relationship with God, notice that that's most of all what Satan wished to destroy. He didn't want them to enjoy that complete unison and unity with God. And thus when sin entered their life, they were separated from God. Was it not Isaiah who said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Satan was thus successful. He separated Adam and Eve from God by, in fact, placing these matters before them. They partook of that forbidden fruit. And thus at that point, they spiritually died. Just as surely as God then was the originator of life, Satan had a very critical part to play in bringing about death. Opposed to God? Absolutely. But in addition to that, notice, he also opposes God in goodness. God is absolute, pure, and true goodness. His creation was good, Genesis 1.31. And furthermore, he had the desire for the human family to enjoy the element of his goodness. Wasn't it in Mark 10, 18 that Jesus made this statement? A rich young ruler came before the master and said, What good master, what thing should I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus first of all said, Only God is good. Perfect pure, absolute, pristine goodness is He. As you give thought to that element of goodness in Acts 10, 38, Jesus went about doing good while He was here walking upon this earth. As one then gives thought to goodness, God is the example. But what about Satan? He is just the opposite. He opposes goodness in all the ways available to Him. And I might invite your attention to John 8, verse 44 as well as Hebrews 2, verse 14. In both of these passages, in both of these instances, we have a view toward, in fact, that which is the opposite of His goodness. I would point out to you this. Looking at that text especially, and noting the way that Jesus refers to Him, in Matthew 10, or Matthew 13, verse 38, Jesus expressly said, "...the evil one." Rather than being good, he is evil. Rather than encouraging goodness, he encourages evil. Rather than, in fact, bringing about that which is godly, 
He encourages that which is ungodly. To say then that these are just the opposite of each other seems to be an understatement. Perhaps one final consideration, notice that even in the matter of love, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He has your best interest at heart. He has my best interest at heart. He wants you and I to enjoy all the goodness of what His grace will make available. But Satan is just the opposite. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love me. He isn't interested in bringing about that which is your eternal or my eternal welfare. He hates you, literally. We know that because of this. In John 8, again, it says, He was a murderer from the beginning. He wants to take life, not bring it about. He wants to destroy life rather than encourage it to be better and greater. And in 1 John three fifteen, we notice that those who murder are guilty of hate. He was one who hated from the beginning and He still hates you. We sometimes hear much in the world about hate. And one group or one class of people hating another, but literally, Satan hates you. He doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't want what's best for me. He wants to hurt you. It is to be noted then that he opposes God in love, in goodness, in life. Even beyond all of that, notice where that brings us at the bottom of that slide. I stated it like this. The devil's opposition to God is thus entire and it's thorough. What does this bring then of him? What does he do, do based on this hatred and based on this opposition? First of all, might we put it in language like this. That hatred and that opposition that in fact is he, it is not passive. He doesn't just sit around in the confines of some place and think about things. He puts that hatred into practice and he puts it into action. It prompts him to do certain things. The devil is active. He is on a mission, a mission of destruction. The Bible, in fact, leads us on the following journey. We should first of all take solace in this thought. The devil is not as powerful as God. His hatred of God is tempered by the fact that he cannot do all that God can do. He opposes God and he hates that which is good. But look at some of these verses. In Genesis 3.14, when God, in fact, placed the punishment upon him, he was powerless to resist it. You'll notice that God on that occasion informed him that it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the power of the devil. He was powerless at the time of Calvary to overwhelm Jesus. But might we notice furthermore, we see even in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 and 11, that precious scene of the day of judgment when His eternal doom is finally asserted, that lake that burns with fire and brimstone, He will be powerless to resist, and into that lake He shall forever go and be. Notice, He can't overwhelm God's power. All of that, though, does lead us to notice that the Bible does say He is powerful, just not as powerful as God. Look at a few of these passages with me. Jesus, in referring to him in John 12, 31, called him the prince of this world. Isn't it amazing the Lord used the word prince to refer to him? As if one who had authority or one who at least had a degree of magnitude and power. 
Later we notice in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that there the inspired apostle reckoned him as being the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, verse number 2, the inspired penman therein declared that he is the prince of the power of the air. All of those indicate that this being of whom we're speaking is a powerful being. A God and a prince is how he is referred. It might be in light of all of that. The question now then should be this. How does the devil use that power? What does he do with it? In what attack of it does he make? The Bible does not leave you and me to wonder about this because it's clearly stated as follows. We noted earlier that God and this devil are so opposite in many regards. Goodness, life, the characteristic associated with their natures, namely that of love. But what about this other one? And I reserved it until this point in the lesson. One other thing about God that can be stated surely and absolutely is this. God wants you to be saved. And He wants me to be saved. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 we read, Who would have all men to come into a knowledge of the truth? Who would have all men to be saved? God doesn't want any person to be lost. He doesn't want any individual to be separated from the bounty of His mercy, love, and grace. But notice how that contrasts to the devil. Just as surely and just as intently as God wants you to be saved, the devil wants you to be lost. The particular passage to which I would direct your attention is verse 17 of Revelation 12. On that occasion we read about a dragon and we read about the woman. And we appreciate the fact that this dragon in several verses earlier, nine to be exact, this dragon is the devil. So when we read in that passage about the dragon that's discussing with us about the devil, what does the devil do? He actively pursues the child of the woman. And you'll notice who, who is that child and who is represented in terms of it. It's the saints. The saints of God that He makes war with them. He is at war, my friend, with you and me. He is bent upon your destruction. He's bent upon you being lost. That's the thing He wants most. He isn't so much concerned about how much money you've got now and the niceties that you may enjoy in this life, the comforts of all this earth. He isn't quite so much interested about that. What He wants is for you to be lost eternally. That's the greatest thing to Him. With that in mind, notice some of the ways the Bible develops that. How does the Bible bring about you and I being lost? What is involved in it and how does He accomplish it? It begins in the following way. If it's the case that the devil encourages men and women to be lost, he does that, of course, by bringing about that which causes people to be lost. Notice the Bible asserts it in the following way. The cause is spiritual death. Sin is what brings that about. So, the devil in his interest to cause you and me to be lost, he's interested then in you and me committing sin. He wants us to be sinners. He wants us, in fact, to revel in it, to dip into the lowness of it and to remain there. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to just stay for a little while in the world of sin. He wants you to be overwhelmed by it, to be engulfed within it, and to remain therein. 
Look at some of the ways that is stated for us. In Ephesians 2, verse number 1, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul was speaking to the church in Ephesus and he said, Brethren, you were dead in trespasses and sins. There was a time when in fact the prince of the power of the air, next verse, had you exactly where he wanted you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Thus, what caused them to be dead? Sin. What caused them, in fact, to be spiritually unalive? Trespasses. It remains that way today. If the sin, if the Satan can bring sin into your life and mine, he will have gotten what he wanted. He will thus separate us from God by virtue of that sin, and because of that separation, we're spiritually dead. You'll notice furthermore in Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If Satan can bring sin into your life and mine, the inevitable result is spiritual death. His activity thus is directed toward that end, and he makes no apologies about it. Because you see, he knows he's lost the war. But he wants to win as many individual battles as he is able to win. The very bottom slide summarizes much of the second half of it. The devil's desire is to cause you and me to be lost. He brings that about by working feverishly to encourage sin in your life and mine. That encouragement of sin is highlighted thus in the following way. Since sin is a transgression of God's law... His interest is to cause you to transgress and violate the statements that God has made. The following thoughts take us to James chapter 1, beginning in verse number 13. It is the case that those three verses, that trio of passages in verses 13 to 15, are those that we will use by and large the remainder of our lesson this morning. Those passages are ever so pertinent and ever so compelling. The inspired writer began in the following way, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Let's unpack some of that laying a bit of emphasis upon various statements and <clears throat> phrases to be found in it. And might we in fact begin in the following way. Since Satan, as we've learned, is desirous of you and me committing sin, we have just now read that our lusts are what can become sin. So Satan is a master at developing lusts within your life and mine. He is a master at inciting them, encouraging them, developing them, directing them in various ways. He wants that lust to turn into sin. He wants that lust to conceive. Did you notice that's what James said? Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. He doesn't want the lust to just lie dormant. He doesn't want you to forget about it. He wants to take whatever that series of thoughts may be, Develop it into lust, which ultimately will conceive and bring forth sin. That's his desire. That's what he wants. As we now understand that that's what he wants, let's define the term. That word lust literally means the following. 
It is a desire for what is forbidden. And might we take this opportunity to emphasize the following fact. Isn't it still amazing that James said in that opening verse, verse number 13, he spoke about your lusts. Thus, my lusts are different than yours. And yours are different than mine. Every individual is unique in that regard. There's a particular matter, perhaps a thought or behavior or conduct or action, some series of considerations that make you different than me. What Satan may be able to use to tempt you may not tempt me at all. By the same token, what he might be able to use to develop a lust within me it may be unsuccessful in you. We each are unique in that regard, but Satan understands well and knows all of the weaknesses, those that are yours as well as those that are mine. In his seeking then to develop those weaknesses, those lusts, if you please, may we in fact notice the following. It is to be stated that every genuine need and every thoughtful desire of the human frame, God has provided a lawful and approved way for it to be satisfied and fulfilled and enjoyed. Isn't that amazing? Be it the physical appetite, be it other appetites of the flesh, it matters not. God has afforded a means by which that can be lawfully and approvedly fulfilled. But when those things are fulfilled in a way other than what God has approved, that's where lust can develop. That's where lust then can begin to have their rise and ultimately lead to that which finally will be called sin. In fact, I would ask you to notice that word enticed. It is so significant. Notice again that James said that enticement is a part of this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The word enticed literally means to catch with bait. And in fact, the original character of that word is in fact that which emanates into the word you and I use today. For those who catch fish, they use bait. Have you thought about the way in which that bait appears to the fish? It appears attractive. It appears to be deceiving. For it appears to be a nice meal. It appears to be wholesome, attractive, and that which would be good for the character of the being. But then when he takes a bite of it, and if the fisherman is astute, he has taken a bite of what has led to his doom. Isn't it that way with sin? Satan can make it appear so enjoyable, so pleasurable, so enticing, and so attractive. And all the while one engulfs it, and then it has led to one's downfall. It has brought about destruction and doom. It's tarnished and marred one's name. And it has separated him from his God. It's been enticing. May we notice then that one of the things that Satan can do, we said he was powerful. He can take what will lead to our downfall and make it look pleasurable, make it look appealing, and make it look inviting. I might ask each of us, as God does, to never forget that fact. Because after all, isn't it true that this conception of lust is what the Bible calls sin? 
that lust that's within you and me, if we allow it to have its head, and if we allow it to pursue and lead to its natural end, its conception will inevitably produce that which is sin. And again, that's what Satan desires. That's what he wants. To say that it is a focused and strong attack is an understatement. I would invite you to notice with me 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Let's revisit the first two warnings. So often the Bible has commandments in it, and these commandments are for our good. And there the commandment is, be sober. Today, in our common language, we use the word sober as referring to one who hasn't taken alcoholic beverage. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means be of sound mind. Be clear-headed and clear-thinking. Don't let him fool you. Be sober and be vigilant. That word vigilant means be on guard and watchful. He'll slip up on us. He, because he is a master of deception, he is a master of subtlety. He's clever. He will thus slip upon us when we think He's not around. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Your adversary the devil walketh about. He isn't just waiting for you and me to come to Him. He's looking for you and me. He is on the march and ever ready to pounce upon us because as a roaring lion, He's watchful and ready. He understands and knows perfectly well the way in which you and I can be attacked by virtue of lust that will lead ultimately to sin. What then, having stated these matters, are those modes of attack of the devil? The more information we know about the method that he will use to attack, the better capable we can be of understanding that ahead of time and preparing for it. Thankfully, we are told in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15, what those modes of attack are. Let's notice them again. John begins by writing, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We have a three-pronged consideration might we list them and note briefly in passing what they consist of. The lust of the flesh. Some of those approaches and tactics the devil uses take a physical thing, an entity, that may well in its proper place be notable and noble for the flesh. But he takes it and with it excites those lusts of the flesh. Isn't that what was the case in regard to Mother Eve? In that Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verse number 6, we well remember that she looked upon the fruit after Satan entered in conversation with her about it, and she noted it was good for food. It would taste good. It would satisfy the hunger and the fulfillment of that element of my fleshly desire. Cannot Satan do that today? Some element that otherwise is perfectly fine. In general, we know there's no problem eating a piece of fruit, but then it was wrong because God said so. Today, something that otherwise and ordinarily is not a problem, but when it takes a position that's opposed to what God has said, it becomes wrong. 
Satan can excite it, make it look so lovely and desirable, and we fall for the bait, and we're enticed by it, and we pursue that which is in fact going to lead to our sinfulness. But notice also the lust of the eyes, something that looks so good. So often Satan uses sexual matters in that way this day, doesn't he? Where men and women are basically prancing around naked, half-dressed at best, and in them it looks good to the opposite sex. And so it is, as one gives thought to that, as well as it otherwise, as it excites the pleasures of the mind through the avenue of the eye, the lust of the eyes has been excited and so it is with that regard in that way as well as others. Wasn't it Eve who in that same verse said it looked good to the eye? So often what looks good to the eye, my friend, will doom your soul and mine. It will lead us down a pathway that leads to doom and destruction. Finally, there's the pride of life. What otherwise is satisfactory to your degree of arrogance and self-esteem? Be aware, each of us should, that the Bible encourages us to look upon ourselves properly. We love ourselves just as surely as we love others, of course. But if that love becomes misplaced and we look condescendingly upon others, and I'm better than you, that pride of life has been excited. So much so that we now are a hindrance to the work of God. No wonder in the church in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul asserted that they were to be members one of another. They were not to condescend and look lowly upon somebody else. In all of that, we notice Satan is a master and encouraging through envy and jealousy that pride of life that can destroy a church perhaps as quickly as anything else. In light of all of those matters and statements, is it not fair to say as we come near the conclusion, the closing point of our lesson, that these statements are self-evident. Inasmuch as he is a one who walks about as a roaring lion, Satan is acutely aware of your life and mine. He knows you and he knows me extremely well. He knows what can be ultimately brought about to a lustful temptation. You'll notice that today we've really been discussing temptation. We use that word often. Now we have a better understanding of it, it would seem. It is Satan's way to get you to lust after something. And that lust to lead you to pursue the lust and thus commit sin. Now might we be quick to say, His goal for you is hell. That's where He wants you to end up. And His way to get you there, and His way to get me there, is to bring about sin which requires that you lust. And so as we thus give unto those lusts, might we notice this following set of statements. He is the tempter. All those things in life, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, He can bring them about. Now might we say He cannot force you to give in to the temptation. He cannot force me to do the same either. There's always guaranteed to be a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But he is a master of making them look appealing, perhaps even deceiving you to the point that you don't even look for the way out. You find yourself engulfed in it before you even realize it. He's good. He's clever. He's subtle. All the while, though, remember, 
in the short term, it may look wholesome and it may look fine and it may look noble and it may even look good. But in the final end, the smile on his face tells you he's deceiving and he wants you to be lost. The final statement that we should perhaps consider, he cannot force us again to give in to the temptation, but he can arrange situations to make them enticing. Just like that fish who grabs onto the bait and then is caught, you and I can do the same. We should thus think soberly, earnestly, and seriously about the decisions that we make day by day. Am I deciding based on the Word of God or am I deciding based on what I think or what I've heard someone else say? Your eternal destiny at mine is at stake. Will we follow the devil or will we follow God? There are complete opposites. And so, in summary, in highlighting all that we've learned or at least considered, we know that that opposition is seen so keenly in the Word of God. Everything from the matter of love to the matter of salvation. The devil wants you to be lost and God wants you to be saved. You, my friend, have the deciding vote. At this point, it's tied one each. If you vote for the devil, you'll be lost. If you vote with God, you can be saved. If today you have an understanding of where you stand, and perhaps to this point you have voted with the devil, that could be bringing about one of two situations. It may be you have never become a member of the body of Christ and never have you allowed Jesus to wash your sins away. Today, that could happen. You could, in fact, <clears throat> veto the vote with the devil and begin to cast your vote with God. Jesus said, Except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins, John eight twenty four. You thus must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Furthermore, He affirmed in Luke 13, 5, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Thus you must repent of those sins in your life, understanding that they are what sent the Lord to the cross and that they are what have separated you from God. Then you're commanded to confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God per the language of Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then you're commanded to be baptized, Acts 2.38, for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in that today, the baptismal waters are ready and warm, why not today? If you have become a Christian but you haven't been faithful, you have begun to vote with the devil, don't remain in that situation. Understand the Lord wants you back as a faithful member of His kingdom and as a faithful worker in His vineyard. If we can pray upon your behalf for the forgiveness of those sins, Acts 8, verses 20 to 24, we'd be honored and happy to do that as well. If any of these things would be the need of your life today, why not let that be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.